everyone, welcome to Choice Podcast and I'm Choi Yu Chen. As you know, the intention of the podcast is to give tips about doing business in Asia, but also about choices and possibilities in life. And my guest of today is definitely showing that last one, because Lee Duploy had had many lives until now. Born in South Africa, studying in Paris in the late 60s, a PhD in Amsterdam, married to a Dutch leading ballet dancer, a clinic for the rich and famous or just the traumatized in London, and now in Hong Kong, painting, writing books, helping older people with their physical problems and the younger ones with their mental problems for free. He's using his gifts to help people that are crossing his path and that leads to people returning the favor, confirming that he is on the right track of life. In this wonderful interview, Lee shares with me how he experiences life, shares his wisdom and what his art means to him. Without further ado, Lee Duploy. Hey Lee, good to have you here. How are you and where are you? I'm very well and I'm in Hong Kong in my little apartment. I'm happy to be here and I'm grateful that you're interested in what I have to say. I'm very excited to interview you. So let's start right uh, away. Your life had uh, quite some chapters. My grandfather used to say, if you try to divert the river of life and you're no longer in charge of it, it will go back to its own form. And one of the things I've always found since I've left what I do in a formal way in London is to be able to do things in a very loose, cavalier, haphazard way. I like that. I like the sort of chaos of life a little bit. But to divide the chaos a little bit or to organize it, I could divide it in like chapters. You have art and psychology because you're a therapist and an artist. So can you tell us how and why you started as a therapist and give us an impression of how that is? One of the things my mother did when I was a little boy is to say to us, our obligation is to be interesting. And uh, what we need to do in order to justify our existence is to be kind. So that was when I started working with people, because my mother used to go around to people and give them medicines and look after them, et cetera. So I learned from a very early age that it was irrelevant as to how you perceive the person who's sick, whether they have five cats and they have bad feet. It's not really your position to make a judgment. Your position is to help. And my mother instilled this to us when I was very young. And my mother was a, rather a snob, so we had two lives. Because she was quite wealthy, we collected a lot of art. And I was always surrounded by art. And I was interested in it. to live in a place that's not interesting as a miserable life. You should make your life interesting. It's almost like an obligation. So, of course, therapy is just an extension. And there is a correlation between the two. People often forget art is intrinsic to life. It expresses how we feel. And it's a conveying. It's a message which we can use to see ourselves in. That's what painting is about for me. Therapy and all the many guises and all the things that I've done over the years and all the modules that I've studied, a multitude with different names, have always given me one of the criteria, which is my job is to help people with issues. That is not, that's quite a challenging task. Not really. If, you, if you're intrinsically a kind person, it's easy for you to help. But if it's also been instilled in you, as it is for me as a child, that is our obligation. And I knew from a very early age on that I would do something by looking further to study and to look at things in perspective. What bothers me a lot is how 
the current mood of technology has changed our perspective that people think that they can find an easy solution. And the clinics that I've worked in and run all over the world, I've always brought one question back in mind. Your obligation is not the white coat or the books or the office. Mm-hmm. Is your purpose is what it is that you have to be able to help other people with. And so everyone should try to find that in themselves. Your inner core is kindness. I'm very old. And one of the things that I found in my life, I've never been cheated. Nobody's going to steal anything from me or cheat me or whatever. And in a way, because of my attitude toward that, changes my perspective. Of course, your thoughts become your reality. And it's your perspective changes because if you're on the on guard and the two as the flight and fear thing, that you are constantly under the cosh with trying to run away from something. The fear controls your emotions, right? And if your emotions are smelt like an animal, people react to you in that way. So the work I do now is working mostly with old people. And I no longer need to have an intellectual conversation with them about what it is that's wrong. Uh, I work physically, so I've retrained, which is actually harder than spending seven years training in something else by finding out, by making a simple prognosis of somebody's Uh, physical disability in 15 seconds. And oddly enough, here I work outside. So I work with people very quick and easy. And it's like a 20-minute thing. And I think to myself, why didn't I do this when I was 50 (laughs) or 25? The the correlation between two things are very much mind and body concept. And it's always related to old people who have hip joint pain in the knee, rotator cuff and these kind of things. I tried not to get too intellectual about things because most of the time the people that I used to work with for the suicides and so on were different because people are looking continuously for answers. And sometimes there's no answer. Of course, it's just life, right? But it's like almost opposite. So you're now helping older people outside with physical complaints who... This is going on for years, of course, and it's the same people. So five or six people in the morning, I go to to Sun Yat-sen to do my Tai Chi, and there are four or five, six people there, including my stalker. I have a stalker as well. I made a deal with my stalker, which I say, give her an hour on Friday, on Wednesday, and say, okay, listen, let's make a deal, and then that's it. But basically, my job is interesting because for years, if you train to be a a prognosis or therapist to try to find what's wrong with people mentally, it's a complicated thing to try and find a way to make a judgment of somebody's pain because you can't measure pain. It's all subjective to people. So I try to work on that basis. And I wonder sometimes if it's just psychosomatic or because the placebo thing, of course, is very relevant in the work that I do. I have tremendous success with people like stroke people, for example, mm-hmm. you know, who can't walk. And then I work on them for I don't know, a month or two and I jiggle about and I research a little bit and push and prod and whatever. And to my amazement, they up and walk. So that's my reward. But do you think that you would be able to do that without your background as a therapist? No, no. So it is correlated. My years of of training is, uh, I wouldn't say if you look at, often people say, if you have your life over, what would you do? I wouldn't go to the Sorbonne. I would go to Amsterdam, of course, and I would do my research at at the Exceptor Medica. I'd spend my time because that was the learning curve. But of course, one has to remember your life is really related to your experiences, not the piece of paper you get. And this is what I often say to people. It's, a white coat does not a doctor make or a piece of paper. With a, it doesn't make a good doctor. It's just a piece of paper. So for me, I'm always looking at it from the point of view, how can I solve something without having to be paid money 
or to get uh, recognition for something which is different. What I don't like is the white coat syndrome where people are obsessed with proving their credentials on the basis of using words which are irrelevant. And how is that related to your paintings or to your well, need well, to paint? Let, let me give you an example of what I found interesting. I wrote a, a thing, which is a talk I did not long ago, and it was an interesting talk about words and meaning. So I'll come back to my painting in a second, but I'll tell you how this happened. Because I had a lady who, she was working as a florist. And on Friday, each Friday, a guy would come in. She said, uh, the guy would buy flowers, and very nice guy. And then the woman said uh, to him one day, the woman who you're buying the flowers for must be very lucky. And she said, he said, it's for my mother. I just come in to see you. And she said, oh, why? And he said, but you're a beautiful woman. Do you not know this? Anyway, she's never had any relationship with this, any person. So after a while, he got, you asked her to get married to her. And she then came to see me and said, look, I have an issue because I can't get into a physical relationship because I was abused as a child. Now, words and meaning is very important here because effectively by taking all the notes and asking all the questions, I asked who it was and she said, as a father and so on and said, when did he leave? And she said, when I was one. Now, the question should be, how do you know you were abused if you were one? So the words and meaning becomes the issue. So she had to go back to her mother, of course, and so on. And then she found that in their language, abuse is not the same as our language, which is sexual abuse. So by having explained to her mother with this situation, she said, it's not what I mean. Abuse in that context, he was shouting a lot. In three seconds, basically, we've changed the whole concept of what her issues are about. She got married and lived happily ever after. Now, what is interesting with the story is how does that relate to a painting? So for me to convey, I can write an academic paper, or I can write a research paper and offer it to whatever it is, except a medical or philosophy or whatever it is. But the interesting thing to do is to write the story by painting the picture. And that's what I love. I like the idea of being able to translate something that I can do physically and make a picture of, my, of this woman, which I still to this day treasure. And I love the idea that her life changed in three seconds just by changing the word meaning from abuse into something which it wasn't you see life-changing and impressive indeed and we have these we often have these with with people i worked with the suicide bench people where people would come in the park and talk to me about suicide now what becomes difficult for me is has my i had a do you remember they're old you're not old enough to remember there was a movie called mash and it was in vietnam during the thing and or the Korean War, it was in fact during that time. And one of the headings was that suicide is painless. Now, what's interesting is the word suicide is a very deep, complex word because effectively it implies all sorts of things. What I found is when people came to see me and they'd say, you have to remember it's in a park outside, right? So these people would come and say, I've come to see you because I feel suicidal. Now, feeling suicidal and considering to make suicide are two different things. So I change this very often by saying, explain to me what it is that you want to do, how you want to change your life rather than how you want to commit suicide. So mm. changing the perspective changes the whole value. And I found that I've worked with these people by painting, sitting with them and doing what's called the psychotherapy. It's a bit like chess. And I just sit there and say, you paint your painting and I'll paint my painting. And what became interesting is how their whole life changed by just giving a little bit of credence anybody who goes through a terrible cycle of anxiety first thing to do is to learn to swim mm. take your mind off it is that you're concentrating too much and that's what i think mm. nowadays the issue is too many people are concentrating on what's the obstacle 
rather than what's the option. And they just look at everything as a negative. So I find that as I get older, and I find that people are just a bit lost. And for many years, we used to use in our clinic this little heading, which was, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. There's a guy called Wayne Dwyer. And again, because I've been doing this for so many years, I realized that it isn't actually new. If you can get somebody to change their perspective about an issue that they find difficult to overcome, emotional issues, you can let them give them an option by saying, look, for example, the guy's working in McDonald's and say, um, why don't you get a job at Goldman Sachs? It's easy to say if you've got, as my mother used to say, if you've got a few dollars in the bank, it's very easy to be a spiritualist or to be spiritual. And one of the issues, of course, is that the person themselves in that situation can't see the wood for the trees. So it's easy for a therapist to say, oh, just change your perspective and get positive. It doesn't work. I think we all make that mistake. <laughs> But okay, therapists do that too. Often, often. Okay. This is a suicide bench. Is that in Hong Kong, by the way? Yeah, this actually started in Zimbabwe because the people in Zimbabwe, there are only seven, 11 psychiatrists for the whole population. Zimbabwe went through a terrible crisis because the country was completely, the inflation rate was worse than Venezuela. And in fact, a lot of people there decided that in order for them to have kind of emotional issues, which is a, to have treatment for emotional responses or emotional issues, they had to go to a hospital and since there were no psychiatrists or very few places that they could go to. They, this guy called Dixon Chavande started to create this thing called the friendship bench by training old, old people, old grandmothers to sit with people and just mm. talk it through. And it's surprisingly enough, it had a tremendous effect. And Shona, as I said to you earlier, there's no word for depression. It means to overthink the problem. And one of the things I find really interesting is if you often say that to people, they've come to see you and they say, oh, I'm really in a state of depression. I said, describe to me what you mean. They often describe anxiety, all these new ways of treating anxiety is one of the things that is very old that people make it new. The way in order for you to change your perspective about an illness is to give you the objective perspective of what it actually is that you have. So anxiety, yeah. for example, is treatable. And that yeah. is actually one of the things with positive psychology can change your mind. Whereas depression is really not something that you should use as a way to say, I'm a bit anxious. Yeah. So changing depression into anxiety changes the perspective. Anxiety is treatable with all sorts of ways. We have all sorts of ways to treat that. Recently, I've been yeah. using a metronome mm -hmm. and called EMDR. The eyes move in a very particular pattern if you mm. have deep, deep sleep, REM sleep, as we say. And the eyes correlate because what's that what you used to see? The brain then translates. And in a way, since thoughts aren't real, Mm. Your translations depends on your perspective. And what I've been working with a lot is to get people to concentrate not on what, is, or what it is that they think they have, but to find an objective opinion about a perspective, to give them an option. And yeah. often I've heard this with people saying, since you don't have depression, what do you have? And they say, well, I have anxiety. And I said, and what can we do? Yes, we can treat that. Okay, so come back. I don't know why Tuesday, but it always seem to come back on Tuesday. People come back and say, strange, I've been thinking about it. I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I feel so much better. What did you do? I said, nothing. <laughs> I think you feel good because I don't charge money. <laughs> <laughs> It's really great that you're using all this 
work experience and life experience to well heading and, toward and actually you make it very sound very simple but it, uh, i'm sure it isn't and Victoria, yeah. you know i'm heading to 80 right so i've been working for 30 years and of course what becomes interesting is people don't see what value is of certain things. I'll give you an example. The iPhone is an incredible thing. We're speaking in technology at the moment, but in spite of all the advances technologically, medically, whatever you want, we are no happier than our grandparents. And the yeah. reason is very simple. We've been foisted on by a condition which gives us choice. Too much choice, the paradox of choice becomes difficult. You don't know what to use anymore. And that's why fashion is so easy. I always laugh at my friends like two bald men fighting over a comb. Why would you go and buy a handbag mm. that costs uh, whatever it is to make in Italy, although it's stitched beautifully, and then you go to Fion Street and buy a laptop or a fake one and convince yourself that you've got a real bag? This seems to make no sense to me. And that's why if you said to your grandfather, one day people will go to a shop and they'll buy jeans with a, it's a torn and they'll pay money, he said, Troy, you're completely insane. You're crazy. Can't yeah. happen. Well, people are doing that. They pay money for things. And the iPhone is wonderful, but in the desert, it's just worth a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why. Yeah, that's, that's so true, of course. So you, You're saying you're almost 80, uh, so you have a lot of life experience, but you also, you grew up in South Africa. You right. lived in Paris and Amsterdam and London and now in Hong Kong. And you also mentioned Zimbabwe. But Zimbabwe was because it's the proximity of Southern Africa. And I'm very interested because a lot of my family went, my family went actually in 1800 to, to so we've been three, four generations of Africans. And uh, people went as far as Zaire, up and down, whatever. So the whole family spread. Now, sadly, there are a few left, uh, except for my cousin, who's an idiot, but uh, he's a very kind idiot. He always says to me, I have a lot more gold than you. Well, that's okay. <laughs> so he has different life values, but uh, let's You know, like I was... Actually, somebody asked me the other day, what changed your life? I mean, why are you doing what you do from no money in a place like Hong Kong? One of the books I wrote uh, some time ago now was uh, about karma and fate. It's the kind of correlated coincidences that happen through no cause or reason. And I was very, very successful and quite well. I've the Concorde was flying. I used to go back and forth. And one day I had this Ferrari, sorry, to, just to illustrate a point. But the car had some issue with a motor for the windows. And I took it. I could only take it to one guy. And then I was very opinionated about my credentials because of how good I was and having to treat people that are very famous and so on. And I took the car on a rainy day in London to this garage where the man said to me, it's... 7,000 Hong Kong dollars to fix the windows. I said, it's insane. And he said, it's a Ferrari. So that's when he, and he said, where are you going? He said, I'm going back to my office. And he said, where is it? In central London. And he said, well, the bus is just outside. So I went to stand at the bus stop. It was raining absolutely with my nice suit. And the bus came. So can I sat next to a guy who had braces in a suit, no shirt, and just this thing and a little hat. And there was nowhere to sit except it was next to this little old man who said to me, you seem unhappy. And I said, no, I'm just uh, preoccupied. I said, what's the issue? I said, let's cry, whatever. Having just come back from New York by Concord, then having to put the car, which is the Ferrari, into the garage, I was feeling a little bit miserable. And he said to me, oh, it's okay. Life is fantastic. And I said, oh, really? He said, I have been married to my wife for 50 years. 
she has dementia, but she still can make a sandwich for me. I'm very lucky. My daughter, which we had for 32 years, fell off a horse and broke her neck, but we had her for 32 years and she's a wonderful woman. Now, unfortunately, my brother's also got a sickness, which is dementia and it's complicated. Anyway, I have to get off here. And I said, listen, thank you very much for your conversation. He said, keep, I'll see you soon. And I said, I said to him, I'll see you soon. He said, oh, actually, I don't think so. I'm just going to the cancer clinic. I've got six months to live. And I thought to myself, sitting on that bus, going to my beautiful place of work, my life needs to change. And that's the reason why. So the reason I do what I do is because I have a cause and a reason for doing it. My paintings are just a little, my own solace because of the work that I do. And in a way, now I look back and think how futile and how stupid it is to own things that gives you the pretense that you have a status and it's something. It's not what you own, it's what owns you. And the rubbish is that it's, my life was wasted with this lots of rubbish stuff. I was just ridiculous. And it's still very often you see this to this day, right? I can't deal with stuff. I'm a minimalist wannabe. I also discovered the less I have, the more happy I am. Well, it's honestly not what you own, it's what owns you. And people are absolutely obsessed. I I work very often, I go to old people's homes to look and sometimes treat people in their homes. And I realize this kind of thing about gathering stuff is anchoring yourself because if you have more stuff around you realize that your death isn't too far away and it gives you the credence or the pretense that you still have a good life you still have a little bit of life to live in order to justify your existence you surround oh, no. yourself with things that are irrelevant because is that it gives more you here than in the netherlands or in, in no England? no no certainly more in london oh for sure the credence of not throwing the well the, the thing of not throwing things away and you often see this what's called in psychology, they call the ship, cruise ship mentality. And often you go on a cruise ship, not that I do, but people do. And what happens is they have a buffet, they load their plates with food that they're not going to eat and try all bits and then throw it away. You see, because of that. I yeah. was intrigued. A friend of mine told me recently, he said he's uh, he had, uh, made some money and he sold his business. And he said, now I want to change my life. I said, okay, fine. What is it that you want to do? He said, the first thing I want to do is to learn how to give to people. I said, okay, fine, that's very easy to do. You just set up whatever. And then after a while, he called me back. He said, I've been thinking about it. I can't live without my anchor. And I said, oh, fine, meaning that I thought he had some giving books to Nepal or whatever it is. And he said, I need to have a million US dollars in the bank before I can give. And I said, how much, <laughs> how much have you got? I mean, you know, many more millions than he needs. And I said, he's 45 years of age. And I said to him, you are insane. You are creating your own grave. And I often think of this as an analogy. I don't know if you remember many years ago, there was a famous guy in London or in England called Jimmy Savile. He was a disc jockey. And he was a guy who became very famous as a disc jockey. Mm -hmm. And he would go into nursing homes and work with old people and raise a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And when he died, they found out that he was a pedophile. He was a Mm -hmm. criminal. He was a terrible. You remember that? Now, the question at the end of the day is, they said to my friend, you are creating a situation where you're justifying the cause based on your need, which is irrelevant. Believe me, the best thing to do is to learn to live without this anchor of money. Because money, when you die, you can't take it with you. I used to laugh when I worked in clinics here in Hong Kong. Sometimes the old ladies used to say, I'm, uh, how did you manage to live till 90? You look so well there, healthy and young. She said, if I can't take my money with me, I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So I said to him, you could lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig. So change the way you think of things and get away, get rid of your money. Was he convinced? 
sadly not, no. He's buying a <laughs> he said to me the other guy the other day, he said, Will you come with me? I'm buying a car. So what for? He said, What do you mean to what for? I'm getting to go around. I said, Buy the cheapest car. No, I cannot. So you see, what becomes an issue is when we create a situation where we are almost bereft of emotional responses to terrible things because we fill it with rubbish. Mm. We create a situation where all the needs that we have to... Look, I don't say you shouldn't have money, make a living. What I mean is, why buy 10 pairs of shoes? I suffered from this, and I can tell you from a pair of perspective of reality, the more things you have, the more things you worry about. And to organize and to store. Crazy, and to, yeah. crazy, yeah. Crazy. I can't deal with stuff. So, um, the less, like food, the you know, better. when people go to during, I was in, in London, I, I, I was working on my last book, and I went to the supermarket and people would buy the quantity of food which they'd hoard. Now you say to yourself, why do you need 200 rolls of toilet paper? Then from a psychological perspective, this is about fear, right? Because fear defeats reason. So you rationalize when mm. people are fearful. So what they do is they say, we'll buy all of these things. You have enough to start uh, to, go, to go through Shop. the Holocaust. Yeah. And people just say they, they're buying yeah. more and more things and hoard it in case. Yeah. Safety, indeed. I like, I like the lady. Is she called Marie Koi? The Japanese woman who does... Oh, the sparkle. The sparkle yes. lady. What a fantastic thing. I often think to myself when I worked at a, a hospital sometimes... People were the janitor, the guy cleaning the floor. And he'd say, okay, see, okay, bye-bye, I'm leaving. <laughs> this guy's, the guy with no problems. We're yeah. still looking at what the thing is. I remember working, yeah. I was looking at why young people were having strokes. There were about five or six people in this ward. And I was trying to work out what it does. And I was then thinking, is there some connection between these people? Because they were not connected in that way. And we were just speaking about things. And oddly enough, the janitor said, those guys have a strange, they sneeze in such a crazy way. What do you mean they sneeze? He said, they sneeze very loud. And I said, okay. So I asked the guy, you know, why do you sneeze? He said, oh, my grandfather. I found that these five people close their nose when they sneeze. And of course, it causes an aneurysm. Of course, it's a stroke, right? Because of the pressure of the, of the thing. And the janitor was the guy who saw this. Wow. Afterwards, I said to him, his name was Edgar. I said, Edgar, you've done me an enormous favor. I can write a whole research paper on these guys. And he said, there was nothing really. I knew it all along. But you guys... You guys with a white coast, you just pretend to know. I actually know. Yeah. <laughs> That's like really a, a different kind of wisdom uh, by instinct. Yeah, before. for sure. Like my grandfather was really wise. Mm. And what a wonderfully clever old man he was without education, although he was able to achieve so much. In fact, we had a, a place like around the area where the diamond mine was. Uh -huh. And he never used to sell any land. Because people wanted to explore whether that they find diamonds. And eventually all around the farm, all these diamond mines. And he was the only one who's supplying food to the people who are looking for the diamonds. So <laughs> food never runs out. But if diamonds, of course, eventually there comes a point which it does. Oh, you mean that's his business, giving yeah. what they really needed. For sure. Back to where you lived all over the world. Can you say out of your life experience, is there... A different energy in any place? Can your life be completely different because you're living in a different place? One of the things I have a friend who's been successful in many things. He's been writer, painter, whatever, entrepreneur and so on. And one of the things he said to me, he said, what shall I do with my life? And I said, learn how to be ordinary. Learn, strive to be ordinary. And that's a really mm. hard one. This is like the pursuit of happiness. When people say my life is... The only thing in life that matters is to be happy. 
happiness is, as I said to you, two bald men fighting over a comb. You cannot have unlimited happiness and yeah. you cannot have, and people used to say in Paris, I don't know, you can never be too thin. The fact of the matter is you only really have one life unless, of course, I don't know. And I might come back in. <laughs> I've got to come back as me and live my life the same way, for sure, for now. But one of the things that uh, I find uh, intriguing is that in order to live a very simple life, you have to accept certain limitations. And one of the things, of course, is if you have all the trappings, the difficulty becomes difficult because you see that in terms of your own existence as success, mm. the cars, the things, etc. What people say often, why do you come and live in Hong Kong? What a place to live. For me, I'm completely, nobody knows who I am. I have just the very basic old people I work with. I don't need a clinic and a coat. I have nothing really, a few clothes. And I've changed my life to the point where I want to limit everything. I'm not really, I'm, I'm greatly fortunate because karma has given me more than I really need. And in fact, you've seen my studio. How fortunate am I? I'm lucky to have a place to paint, a place to live. And of course, a multitude of friends. And most of the people that I work with are people who say thank you and go on their way. As long as you don't ask for too much, don't uh, overload the boat, as they say. And then you can be happy every, everywhere. Although yeah, happy is not, should not be the, the goal. Uh, no, you should, yeah, your life should be fulfilled. Life. Mm. fulfilled mm. life is really we're not actually looking for happiness we're really looking for peace joy that's yeah, what we're looking yeah, for yeah. if you have peace you can be happy very good word indeed one of the books i've now i'm almost finished with it i'm looking at the difference between aloneness and loneliness i don't mm. know if in dutch it's the same lonely uh alienheit, i would say yeah, would you say in dutch? And so by being alone you can be alone in a crowd right Yep. But loneliness is something which one suffers from. So what I often say to people, because they say I'm alone, my spouse has died by myself, nobody cares for me, learn to live with something to look forward to. I often, if, you, if you look at somebody in a wheelchair, mm. just think you could be that person, as they say, but for the grace of God, right? So you could be that person, and therefore you should use your time in a constructive way. I, I say to people, if you really want to change your life, do five simple things a day, five good things. Open a door, say thank you, even to a person you don't like. Just try that and change the perspective that you have because people are always on the defensive. Go on the defensive and you're on the offensive. Should I say good morning, say hello, how are you? Let me help you. And if one out of the five say, no, piss off or whatever they say, that's okay. That's not too bad. So yeah. um, it means that one should strive and at least to, be a, to have a contented life you should leave a legacy. You should leave something that people care for in the event of you're not here. Re reincarnation possibly could happen, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm but not you're not 100% sure. certain about it. Yet. For sure not, no. So about the legacy you're leaving behind, in your case, it's in the form of books and paintings. And you also, you also combine those two. Yeah. You have a selection of life stories combined with the, the paintings in, in, for example, one of your books, The Glass Facade. These stories, which are quite impressive, are these from patients you saw? At the Mostly. Most hmm. of the time, these are people that I've had. Um, it's difficult because over a career of so many years, of course, you have all sorts of cases. Uh, and I've had extreme, some bizarre man who 
whose wife was going to leave him was an actor for six months. He decided to pretend to be blind. Now, I mean, to keep his wife. This is ridiculous. You think to yourself, why would anybody go to the... But emotions are difficult. You can measure height, weight, length, time, whatever you want, but emotions are really difficult to measure. It's almost impossible to measure. So you don't know what people do in the extremes, right? And the most mild, calm, nice person can often react in a very extreme way in very difficult times that they cannot find a way to defend themselves so they're over the top. The brain is an interesting phenomenon. I've often thought manipulating change is all good and fine, but keeping the change ongoing. The circumstances dictate the choices you make. And if you believe that thoughts are real and you react to them as if they are, then you have an issue. You've got to look at it from the perspective of how to define the differences between living a good life and living just the life chasing things. And so people often have a situation where they say, I don't have a choice. I have to become a whatever it is. An accountant, or like you, a, a lawyer. It, it takes a, a little while. And I think you need, as I said to you, what changed my life was sitting next to this old Polish man saying, I might not see you because I'm going to the cancer clinic. Yeah. I mean, you think to yourself, what do you worried about? What shoes or toothbrush or what? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's irrelevant. That, um, and, you know, the life-changing shoes... Life-changing for you, but also good advice, actually, in the Yeah, sure. If you think about it, Going to buy a pair of trainers that are made in Vietnam for $50 that cost $3,000 is not going to make you run faster, although the assumption is that it will. And it's ridiculous if you think about it, but people just cannot see that. So this concept where we believe the assumption is that you become a better person. I remember when I first came to Hong Kong, when people had a, a price under the shoe. They walk up the steps, you can see the front, or the label on the jacket. And so you think, you know, did I, was I like that? What I'm that vain? Often you have this when people, and I suffer from this, of course, as well. You send your children to the very best schools, and then they, not resent it, but you think, well, I would have used that money to feed the people in Vietnam. Or yeah. <laughs> they don't appreciate it. This is something you can't resent, right? Or you send them to, to the best schools, but you don't hardly spend any time with them. That's often the case. One of the strange things is in my time, I've met really extraordinary people and I've often spoken to people about life's changes, this kind of thing, from Sting to George Michael to Ishiguro, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of people and often have a discussion because the school is a catalyst or the clinic or the, and I find that effectively we're all looking for the same thing and how to fulfill your life to do something constructive is very difficult and it's like being blind and seeing for the first time. It needs something to shake you Mm. into Mm. uh, a a perspective that you can change your value of life. Because life is only once from my perspective, and I'm already getting to the point where I'm getting old. So I think to myself, use everything constructively. And I tell you what, if you haven't learned to swim, do so. Do five good things in your life. Have porridge for breakfast and a banana. Eat little and exercise a lot and think differently. Yeah, wow. Let what you be, let what you love be what you do, as they used to say. I wanted to ask you, all these different people you have met, are they are you very alike or are very different? But I think based on what you're you've been telling me now, the conclusion is that we are very much alike. The fame uh, we all strive for the same thing. Well, yeah. what becomes difficult when from the perspective of famous people, it's very often not them that creates this illusion of mystery that they have. Mm. It's always related to the people that their entourage. 
And I found, for example, one-to-one conversations with people, people are just normal people, right? Until you see how the people react to them. So walking in the street with somebody who's famous, yeah. you become a little bit, how do you say in Dutch, a little bit, you want to, to show that you are the building and the ego then comes into play because everybody reacts as if these people are exceptional. Yeah. But one-to-one, very often people have They're the just same normal issues. People. I have issues, my father doesn't approve of me yeah. or... I mean, I can't have a normal life. And Are you now referring to Britney Spears? No, I'm just referring to people that have become very famous who, and I often say to people, would you give away your fame for being normal? They say, of course not. Mm. It's a nice, wonderful thing to have achieved something in your life. Mm. And I, for myself, when people say your, your stories are wonderful, your books are very good, that's terrific. But it isn't something that I'm looking for because it's only me that matters. It's only... I'm the one who judged that, yeah. not other people. Yeah. And my, my legacy, no doubt, will be my paintings or my books or whatever. But I suspect my kids will, I don't know what a skip is when no. you have a big container to throw your garbage in. They used to have them in Holland. Those huge metal things that when you move, you put all the lumps up in there, all mm-hmm. the rubbish inside, the things you throw away. And often you walk past one of these people's whole life, their photographs are all thrown in the trash, in the rubbish. Mm. And you think, why do you attach importance to your little paintings? They're irrelevant. But somebody will change that perspective. And my kids are very uh, successful, I want to say, because they all do the things that they love to do. But very Mm. often I look at what they, for example, selling a painting. Uh, I was laughing at my daughter because she sold in one of uh, David Bowie's photographs, whatever. So what makes him a good photographer? Nothing, because he's a famous singer. So why should his pictures be valuable? Because he's David Bowie. Well, that's... It doesn't make sense. But you see, the illusion is created by the media. And that's what we suffer from. If you look at it currently, uh, people have, it's a ridiculous thing to buy clothes and shoes, all this kind of stuff, which costs a large amount of money just to show your friends that you can do. I I remember working with people when I was uh, recently, some years ago in Hong Kong, said, I've come to see you because I suffer from anxiety and I have some depression. I said, how do you know? And they said, describe the fact that their friends tell them. I said, but how do you feel? My friend, how do you feel? They have no reference. Because you are, if you intrinsically don't know who you are, what yeah. you're looking for, yeah. you have to then rely on people that are the opinions outside. And that's why advertising sells you a concept that you're not good enough. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I laughed. I was working with a girl who had, I was really surprised. She had gone to Thailand mm-hmm. and she had, in that, she had a, I think she had, might have had a, a pylori bacteria, it's just a gut bacteria, and she could not walk. She was falling all over the place, 26 years of age. And I couldn't, we couldn't work out what the issue was until she's told me her story. She's gone to Bangkok, etc. And she put a pin through her ear, or, or somebody put a pin. And she had pins and staples all over, how people, young people do. Uh, pins through the nose, pins to order, okay. And somebody had put a pin through her ear at the particular point which her imbalance was impaired. So I said, let's try and take this out. And she was perfectly okay. Wow. And I thought, how do you have all these things put to yourself? Like the tattoos that people have. And this yeah. is all desperation to be accepted, to belong. I don't know. We both have kids, so it's always hard. And I think, why would you buy a pair of shoes that cost a lot of money yeah. so that your friends say, well, you've got a Nike or whatever. People still have a lot to learn. I have a I little think. saying, uh, which is, uh, I have it in my studio. It says Ecclesiastic. It says, meaning, it's meaningless, nothingness. It's only relevant when people attach value to it. 
Yeah. And I think it's like the truth. It's only true if you believe it to be true. And we attach value to all the wrong things. How to reach the fulfillment in your life. And that is, as I understand, by service to others. So you're helping a lot of people, most, yeah. yeah, young people with, who have are suicidal or having suicidal thoughts and elderly yeah. people. The about, elderly people is a challenge. It means I've got to go there, see if they fed. And yeah. I close my nose for the cats because they usually give a little garbage <laughs> and all this stuff. And then oh. run away quickly. But mostly what I do is I try to work on my favorite people. I have about eight, seven a day, six, five and so on. And they're the most of the people with very simple issues, rotator cuff, hip joint problems, and so on. And I don't have anywhere other than working outside. So I carry my little bits with me. And very often, I just wonder if anybody would see me that I was working in the old days and say, what are you doing now? I'm working outside with people with my bare feet in my little few bits and pieces. And I said, people say, why? Why? Because I can. And secondly, because I want to. The white coat syndrome is a real problem. I can tell you, a lot of people suffer from the fact that, and if you say you don't charge, people say, well, it can't be good. But do you feel like you're being rewarded in some way? You not know, not my, necessarily my reward, with money, but... Oh my God, I'm absolutely fulfilled. I'm a grateful... I, every morning I wake up and say, oh God, I'm so grateful. I'm so mm. lucky to do what I do. I'm so fortunate to be able to be in the position to have friends or people that I work with who ask me for things. And that I can go to our afternoons, after my two o'clock, I go and paint for four hours. I don't have anybody till five or six o'clock. And that's it. What a joy. What a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, How yeah. lucky am I? Actually, I'm thinking, I'm saying to you that you're helping elderly, but some of these people are younger than you are. <laughs> they have no idea themselves that you are actually older. They don't. It's a part of giving back. I mean, your yeah. rewards is air miles, right? It's the karma miles. And often uh, I have friends who say, don't you have a love enough? What are you looking for? I'm not looking anymore. Mm. I've found more or less what I want. And I think finding peace and fulfillment to do something that you love to do, that's the answer. Wow, I love that. Thank you. And I wanted to go to the usual questions I have to my guests. And the sure. uh, first one is, who inspired you? And I'm thinking about your grandfather or... But actually, the one that really changed my life was a, a man called Joseph Volpe, who's also an African like me, who left to go to New York. And he worked initially on what's called desensitization. And I had one of the biggest issues in my life was how to change people's perspective of phobias, of situations which they react to instantly. You walk through a park at night and a twig touches your leg. You don't take a twig. You immediately jump to the conclusion that it's in the, the tiger. And the monster, that yeah. changed my perspective a lot also came in mind with the point in which I was feeling very self-smug, satisfied, egotistical about the work I was doing and realized in the big context of things, what Joseph, what this guy had done was change the world. I was just changing a few, <laughs> changing a few perspectives. I wasn't changing the world. So he inspired me. Joseph Volpe was his name. He was famous for what's called desensitization of, of phobias, which was his subject. Oh yeah, okay. So that's the whole perspective change is important. Okay, and next question. What would you have <laughs> advised your younger self? Don't change anything. Do exactly what you're doing, but don't take things too seriously. Oh, okay, that's really good advice indeed. Okay. And my mother said, never marry a woman with ugly feet. Because <laughs> and I'm with my wife as a valley dancer in the 50 years we've been together. So... 
I always laugh at that because I'm still with the same crazy woman. There you go. So the advice. Yeah, some, sometimes you get advice, but you don't have to follow it. Well, sometimes the love of somebody is very different, right? And 10 years from now, what are you doing and where I will are be, you? I'll be learning to play the trombone. The trombone, okay. okay. Why not you know, try to start tomorrow? Why do you have to wait to, 10 years? I have too many things. Listen, I'm writing, painting, working on my people. I'm just too many, too busy with my life. Oh, that's great. That's uh Okay, we got a lot of advice from you. Uh, that is definitely very workable. Uh, well, what you didn't ask me is what I would learn to change about myself. I would learn how to be embarrassed. Oh, so you don't, a, you never I, feel embarrassed at all? I've never been embarrassed. No, it's not a good trait. I wish I could change it. Oh, okay. Is it and a, of course, a character then? It's to do with your background, how you relate to things. No, I've never been embarrassed. It's not a good thing. And the people that I work with often have this terrible phobias of, of situations which they are embarrassed. I remember. You do know what saying, people refer to if they say that they feel embarrassed. Yeah, they often use the word shame and embarrassed, two different things. But I have a, a little, I did a talk once for somebody at something. I remember one of the headings is about translation, but it says tears don't care who they cry for. Mm. And I like the idea that very often we have to accept certain issues which we have no control over, which is the subconscious, right? Yeah. Like fear, et cetera, and so on, or phobia. And I've often thought being embarrassed is uh, an emotion which one should learn. But for example, I was uh, with mm. a friend going to a, their wedding, and there was a terrible smell in the, in the car. And I realized I stood on, uh, can I say dog shit? Everybody was so embarrassed. I tell you, I was not, didn't, I took my shoe and left it outside and washed it. And I realized this is not a good thing to be. You should really be proud of me. Now, you could either define by saying, wow, you're so in control of your emotional state, or you've not exposed that little area of which it is. And this is one of the things which, with painting, for example, I'm not painting for money and I'm not writing for money and I'm not working for money. That is sometimes a limitation because if you work for something that you think you are worth to get in return it changes your perspective mm. but as i said i'm working for my karma miles and that's good enough i've been incredibly very fortunate it does change your perspective indeed i i learned uh, the other day that uh, the lady said to me she said i have constant pain and i'm going trying to think of of some ways to help her and I was explaining to her what she should do about her diet. She has issues with the stomach. And I, she said, oh, that's interesting. In Chinese, we say foggy glasses is mong cha cha. And she said, that's how I feel when I see you. And she said she woke up one night in a desperate state, tried to go to the toilet, and she realized she was blind overnight until she got to the toilet, switched the lights on, and she realized she's put her husband's dark glasses on. And what's funny <laughs> is often people, very sick people, Mm. adhering to the rule that we have to suffer and constantly be ill. I, I often think of this kind of paradox because we are conditioned to react and we don't believe that we will one day be alone and be sick. Mm. So I'm always interested in what's called the placebo. If you look at the elevator and you go to push the, 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 the impatient button, mm. oh, you yeah, push yeah, the button on the, the left, it closes because you're justifying the fact that by pushing the button, the door closes. But does it actually... It's on a timer, so if you don't push yeah. it, it will still close. And sickness are very often, you don't choose your sicknesses, but your reaction to your illnesses are mm. controllable. A lot of people I'm working with are really ill, hardly walk, 
but they're still cheerful. Yeah. And their disposition yeah. is different. So I often think, is that related to your own way of thinking? Or is it just how your character is? Mm. And often people say Hong Kong is polluted to hell, but people live very long because the attitude is quite a positive attitude for old people. Mm. Geriatrics like us live a long time. We don't want to, when you see old people, people, I'm really happier to work with old people than young people. They don't bring the kind of issues with them. And the issues is all related to not being good enough. Mm. That's the problem. Being young yeah. is a constant battle. I want to belong. I, Graffiti or pins or tattoos yeah. or fashion. I want to belong <laughs> and I'm not good enough. Being left out. Nothing, there's nothing worse than emotional rejection. As I said to you, I have a friend who tries to fall in love very often because he feels that he's covered his own thing by being a businessman. And I said to him, how do you know when you love? He said, oh, I just pretend. I said, but that is not real. Mm. The reality is different. Falling in love, really giving, really being open, really being, that's different. Wow, what a life lessons. You're just, I'm very modest, as you know, and shy. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's not true. And uh, I just do the best I can with my thoughts, you know. But there's definitely food for thought. And thank you very much for sharing this. Please, I'll leave you with a very nice uh, Chinese expression, which is Mo Lei Gam Ho Hei. Do you remember that? Mo Lei Gam Ho Hei. Yeah. Does your mother I don't have that? as much energy as you. <laughs> literally fantastic yes thank you very much Lee. please it's a pleasure i'm really grateful you asked me thank you very much yes and i hope to uh, see you soon and uh, hear more of your your yeah. wisdom